Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? I have a very special interview for you. For the money, Bruce Hornsby is the finest all-around touring and recording musician. Now, why would I say that? To me, he just seems to have no weaknesses as an artist. He's an incredible pianist, a fabulous singer. As a songwriter, he's in a class of his own. Bruce Hornsby and his band have performed some of the best concerts I've ever witnessed. And as a producer and recording artist, he makes wonderful albums that I just don't get tired of listening to. When I heard Bruce Hornsby was releasing a new album entitled Absolute Zero, and that's going to be out April 12th, by the way, it got me thinking about when I had the opportunity to do the interview of a lifetime. This was done on camera, but I'm presenting an audio version here for you, the faithful listeners of the podcast. I believe this interview took place February 4th, 2014. It was definitely at Atlanta Symphony Hall. Bruce Hornsby was performing with Ricky Skaggs. Maybe we can do another interview to talk about his upcoming record. In the meantime, I'm happy to offer you this. The Paul Leslie. That's the Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> you've been patient, as I said before. You've been very patient. It's a great How long has it been since you've been trying to? Five it, years? I or? think it's been several years. Yeah, it when has. I wrote you a letter, and you were yeah. kind enough to respond. And here we are. You're playing tonight with Ricky Skaggs. Yes, love it. So, tell me, how are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm a little harried right now, frankly, because it got, had a major mishap in the pickup. Mm-hmm. The runner was 45 minutes late, and we have a new banjo player who needs to get sort of clued in to what I'm doing. And this, too, so all this is made. But I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm relaxing as we go. All right. So, yeah. I think most stories are best from the beginning. What was life like growing up? <laughs> okay, this is a sort of this is your life. Yes, uh, version. Okay, <clears throat> my life was standard small town South, uh, United States small town South uh, upbringing. I grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, which was uh, a unique small town compared to most because it had a, a great college there, William Mary, sort of a Southern Ivy, <clears throat> a very demanding, difficult school to get into. And so consequently, a lot of our, our activities growing up revolved around college activities, the football games, the basketball games. I was the, the bat boy for two years at age nine and 10, I think, for the William Mary baseball team. I was a young, I was a jock as a kid, deeply involved. And so, uh, so that was great for me. I had very supportive parents. My grandfather was a musician for a living in Richmond, Virginia. He supervised music for the public schools. He also played in church on Sundays at different churches around the uh, Richmond area. So we had a piano. This looks like an old piano. Our, our old piano look, looks very much like this. Mm-hmm. And my, my mom still has it, and, and she still lives in the house that we grew up in. And uh, so... I started playing at age seven, took lessons. I asked to take lessons. That's what they say. I sort of remember that that's true. But after about a year, I got kind of burnt with it and wanted to be outside playing ball with the neighborhood kids rather than practicing my scales or whatever my, my assignment was. And so I quit and didn't really look back. I was one of the 
thousands or hundreds of thousands of kids all over the world who, when they saw the Beatles, wanted to play guitar. And so that was about, I guess, I was eight or nine when they came to America, 63, 64. I think it was 64 they came, right? Not sure. 63 or 64. You know, the usual story, we saw them on Ed Sullivan and we wanted to play Vox guitars because they played Vox, you know, that sort of thing. So I played guitar for a while and uh, sort of into it, had little bands with my younger brother, John, who I ended up writing a lot of songs with later in our first several years of our sort of uh, uh, music career of note. And mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I was a guitar player then. He was the organ play organist. We played Get Off My Cloud by The Stones, Cherry Cherry by Neil Diamond. We won the Battle of the Bands against this group called the Renegades because my older brother Bobby was always a really good musician and he had bands and he, they had the great equipment, the Fender Bandmasters, the Fender Showmans, the Tremoluxes. And, and so we had the, we got to use Big Brother's equipment. So we were, we were just louder. We just sounded better. So we probably won just because of that. That was a memorable moment. So I could keep going. I could keep spouting up because I've answered these questions before. I know the answers. Yes. But go ahead. I'll, I'll... Well, well, tell me, you, you mentioned your brother a second ago. <clears throat> I mentioned both brothers. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one that you've written a lot of songs with, John. Yeah, yeah that's right. Not for years. He kind of got burnt out on it about 92, 91, 92. Um, but your, your question is... I was going to ask you, like, can you remember the first time you two collaborated on a song? Well, okay. Uh, we had a... A uh, one of my oldest and best friends, still one of my best friends, he's from kindergarten on, a guy named Chip DiMatteo. We've been writing a play, the last, developing a play called Sick Bastard. You know that Sick Bastard. He's written with me most of those songs. And we had a band booking company called, it was just sort of a sham, a joke, big joke, a company called Zappo Productions. You might have noticed that my publishing company... It's called Zappo Music, an homage to our old days of seeing how much crap we could get away with. And we did this. Uh, we, we would book terrible bands, <laughs> some of the worst bands in our town. We, we wouldn't book a band if they were good. We'd only book a band if they were terrible. And uh, we wrote a play called Schenectady. This is when it was popular to name bands after towns like Chicago. So we wanted we, we wanted to pick the... Sort of the oddest sounding or nuttiest sounding to us name. So it was, it was between Poughkeepsie and Schenectady for us. And Schenectady won. Uh, so we wrote this musical about uh, called Schenectady. And we wrote a sequel called Son of Schenectady. And uh, sort of a, fast forward years later, the same idea came about when we came out with our live record two years ago. Our first live record was called Here Come the Noisemakers. That's another, it comes from another old bar band tale that I could tell you if you'd like. I won't bore you if you don't want to hear it. And so we had a sequel to Here Come the Noisemakers, so we called it Bride of the Noisemakers, <laughs> like Son of Schenectady. So uh, my brother John wrote songs with us for Son of Schenectady. We wrote such songs as There's More to Doing Homework Than Doing Work at Home. Um, let's see. Let's Call Up Chuck, Up Chuck, Up Chuck. <laughs> it was just, you know, we just, just silliness. We had a great time doing this. And we still look back on those days with sort of great fondness because we were basically really not serious kids. Hmm. Well, you know... You, oh, but that's, that's the answer to your question about John Hornsby yeah. when we first start way back then. Way back when. 
You know, you just mentioned the live album, the one, the most recent one. Yeah. Uh, one of the songs on there is one of my favorite of yours is uh, Circus on the Moon. Yeah, okay. Well, one of the things about that song is, and I've noticed this about a lot of your songs, you use a lot of words that maybe people wouldn't think to use in lyrics, just for like, um, you know, the perfect little foil for the prognosticators of doom. Yes, prognosticators. Prestidigitation from Spider Fingers. Yes. A little prestidigitation. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, I think if you listen, if you're a Broadway fan, I'm not really a big Broadway fan, but I'm aware of the genre because we're sort of writing in that area, that milieu now. That those writers use all of these sort of fancy words that you say. Maybe maybe in the popular uh, area, radio music or just um, music f- f- rock bands that rock bands are playing. You might not tend to use it, but I think if you listen to some indie rock, you know, some, some of the sort of the more under the radar screen, uh, music, which is, of course, some of the best music, I think you would find, uh, great erudition, great uh, articulate writing where they're using words like, I guess, prognosticators. <laughs> right. So I don't think I'm, I don't think I have a corner on the market. Randy Newman, for instance, is, is yeah. one of my favorites. A great inspiration to me. I've actually written probably three or four songs that, and I told him, I said, I'm writing, writing Randy Newman songs. Yeah. He said, well, be my guest. <laughs> so, uh, so, but you're, okay, but yes, to answer your question, yes, you're right. I have done that. Well, on that note, uh, you know, like there's so many songs, uh, you just mentioned, uh, like Randy Newman, like you could kind of say that, uh, Hair Gordon is kind of. Yeah, Air Gordon. Air yeah. Gordon, yeah, yeah, is kind of like, it kind of sounds like a Randy Newman song. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Randy Newman, Randy is, is, mind the sort of stride piano ragtime area and that's just an area of the piano that I've never dealt with I'm really pretty bad at it but I wanted to write a song in that stride uh, style because I thought it would well I just wanted to write it I like the style but I, it would make me play that style and maybe get better at it I haven't gotten better at it because I don't play that song enough I've got a solo concerts record coming out and Eric Gordon almost made it but mm. Didn't quite feel like my performance was good enough. Uh, but yes, uh, he's uh, Eric Gordon. Actually, three songs in that record, fully three songs on the record you're talking about, Halcyon Days, 2000, yes. about now 10 years ago, Yeah, amazingly. Uh, there are three songs right in the middle of that record that are sort of of a piece to me. Um, Hooray for Tom, Eric Gordon, hmm. as opposed to Air Jordan, the shoes. That was just sort of my little mindless... Ah. Mindless uh, play on words. Um, and What the Hell Happened to Me, which is one of my favorites of those. I love playing it. I kind of, I, I like playing the funny ones, the self-deprecatory uh, songs. But those three songs, I guess you could say they were coming from sort of a Newman-esque place. And those were the three songs that led some Broadway types to approach me out of the blue and say, we've heard these three songs on this record one, we really really like them, and two, it makes us think that you should be writing a musical. So hmm. I went down that road. That was 2005. We didn't really get going on the idea as, as it is now till say, 2008 or nine. But it's a long process. Obviously, we're not very good at it, but I really like a lot of the songs that we've written for this play. And so those three songs uh, inspired that reaching out to me. But, and, and they're... They, they, I, that's what I said to Randy. I'm writing Randy Newman songs. Those three. Hmm. 
Well, on that note, if it's possible, could you say that the lyrics or the melody uh, are more exciting to you? Well, usually the question that's asked in that regard is what comes first, music yeah. or music or lyrics. And for me, it's it, there's no one way. Yeah, it's not like the Elton and Bernie mm-hmm. routine where the lyrics always came first. Elton wrote to the page that he put this sheet on there and just go. Right. And he's a singular talent that way. <laughs> I'm in Atlanta where I did I did a, a, a duet with Elton on the same record, Halcyon Days. Yes. That, uh, Dreamland. And I came down here. He was living in Atlanta. He may still be. And we recorded in a studio here. That was a great moment. I, he's a great person. And uh, um, anyway, well, right. So lyrics and uh, you can often tell which songs of mine have come lyrics first because often often the the music to those songs is very simple. Three chords, very simple. Set. Two great examples of that to me are Talk of the Town, a song about the first interracial romance in my town and all the consternation it caused among the old uh, conservatives. And that's basically a blues, you know. Uh, it's a very simple song, three chords. Rainbow's Cadillac from the same record, a song about this great charismatic figure. I made him about a basketball player, but I tried to make it sort of veiled so it could be about anything, a charismatic preacher, say. And that's, once again, that came lyrics first, and uh, sort of a lift of a song that we'll play tonight with Ricky, Uncle Penn, the classic, as, uh, as Ricky calls it, the Bluegrass National Anthem, Bill Monroe's great song, uh, the lyrics to Rem- the chorus of Rainbow's Cadillac are not unlike that. So, mm. stealing from the best is what I'm doing there. Uh, but so those are our lyrics first, and then other songs that are more involved musically uh, are, were written music first. Hmm. Well, you know, there was, uh, in your last concert that you did at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. Yeah, the, the one with all the rain. The rain, yeah, the long yeah. rain delay, yeah. I remember. Abbreviated show, too bad. There's a song that you wrote, and you collaborated with the renowned lyricist for the Grateful Dead. Yes. Robert Hunter. I've written several songs with Robert Hunter. Yes, and I remember the drummer's son, Sonny Emery's son. Yes, he sang sang Cyclone. Yes, Yes, he sang it fantastic. He's an incredible singer. Yeah, it was amazing. It's Nicholas Emery. Of course the crowd went crazy. He had a lot of energy. What what is the process? After after Nick Nick Emery did that, we were driving all night, nine, ten hours to Portsmouth, Virginia the next night. I said, hey, Nick, why don't you just come on the bus with us, just impromptu. Come on the bus with us, sing it again tomorrow night in Portsmouth, Virginia. So he did. It was yeah? Great. It's great fun. Yeah. That was, it was a fantastic performance. But what is the process of writing with Robert Hunter like? Well, uh, in that case, it was once again, it was a little different. He reached out to me, I guess maybe 2008, and asked me if I'd be interested in writing a song with him. And I said, of course, yes, because I... I played with the dead. I love their songs. I think they're totally underappreciated as songwriters. I say this in every interview, so I'm always proselytizing for the dead songwriting over, you know, the body of work. And, uh, so of course I want to write with Robert Hunter. So he, and he got back to me and said, well, send me a track. Okay. Okay. Fine. Hmm. I thought he would just send me words. I thought, but luckily for me, I had this piece of music that felt like it would be sort of right in his stylistic wheelhouse musically. And so I, uh, I sent this to him, and two weeks later, 
This is an email correspondence. I haven't talked to him. I haven't seen Bob Hunter since he, he was uh, part of the Further Festival, the second Further Festival, I think, in uh, mid to late 90s, 96, 97, or 98. One of those, he was part of it. It's the last time I saw him. So he just, all of a sudden, two weeks after I'd sent him the music, this email shows up with these lyrics. Hmm. And he'd written it very specifically to this melody and, and chords that I, this musical piece that I'd sent him. So I actually added a couple of words. And I asked him if he was okay with that, and he was fine with that. He thought it was fine. And so that was the first one we've written. Uh, there will be a new Hunter song, new Hunter Hornsby song on this solo concerts record, mm -hmm. uh, the second one we've written. I've written four four now with him. So, uh, yeah, that's it's a very special, maybe the most special aspect of my now 27 years, since now 28 years. 29 years since I was signed, 28 years since my first record came out in April of 86. Mm -hmm. But I think possibly the most special aspect of that whole, uh, that whole, this whole, this whole period has been all the great calls I've gotten from all these people whose music I love, whether they're people I loved when I was younger or people who are, who have emerged since I started. Chris Whitley comes to mind. You know, Chris Whitley is. I do not. Oh, he's one of the greatest. Fucking baddest musicians, so soulful. He he passed maybe six years ago, six seven years ago, but he was so great. And I played on one of his records. We were friends, and I sat in with him a couple of times on his gigs. And he asked me to play. It's funny. He finished this record, and he happened to call me up about something else. And after we were talking, he says, "You know, we just finished this record. We haven't mastered it yet. Can I send it to you? And you just play over it, and maybe if something I can use something." So. Sure. So I did it, and that's on the record called Rocket House. His first record, Living with the Law, is a real classic among a certain small group of singer-songwriters, I would say. Really. And he was really, he opened for Tom Petty that year. He just became sort of a darling of that group. And uh, so Chris Whitley, great. But anyway, it's been possibly the best, the most sort of rewarding aspect of my career is all the calls that I get and just people reaching out out of the blue, whether it's Hunter or many other names. I could be a name-dropping fool here, but I, I'll refrain. Well, you know, you just mentioned appearing on his album, but like... Oh, Chris? You, yeah, Chris. Yeah. But then, like, there's a lot of albums you've appeared on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bob Dylan. But then, right, I loved that. Yeah, I can't imagine. But then the late Warren Zevon. Yeah, I loved that, too. What what was he like to work with? Well, I just loved Warren Zevon. He was a great person. He was part of the, one of the further festivals too. The second one, I think, also. Um, he had me come and play uh, play accordion on a song called "Monkey Wash Donkey Rinse." I loved it, and uh, he was he was loose. You know, he just basically had me come in and, as the trogs would say, just piss all over the tape, and uh, and he used what he wanted and. And then he had me play on another one. He had a song called Piano Fighter. And he oh, had me yeah. play accordion on it. He, had a, he got the greatest kick out of He kept saying this. I love the fact that I'm having Bruce Hornsby play accordion, not piano, on a song called Piano Fighter. So, so that was a look. I, I remember these sessions like they were yesterday. And there were so, there was so special moments. And I think it, it helped my music through the years to be able to step into these other worlds, these other artists' worlds, and see their process, see how they go about it, 
the recording process, the writing process, just just getting to meet, know them personally. So, uh, yeah, these calls have been great. I say no most all the time now because I got to the point where I felt like lots of times I'd go in and play something, and I would try to play something that I thought was interesting and different and enhanced it and moved the music to a more interesting place. But generally they would go, they'd squash my, I, my efforts and go, yeah, you know, that's nice, but can you play it a little straighter? And after I'd be done, I'd go, you know what? You really, you really could have gotten anybody to do this. I'm fine to have done it. I'm happy to have done it for you. But, you know, you really, you didn't get much out of me. I, I, I just have to say that. So fine. And I wasn't mean about it. I just was telling them, matter of factly, that you know, you, you, this was not special. You, you didn't. You, it wasn't wasn't special what I did. Hmm. Anyway, enough of those experiences occurred, and so I stopped doing it. I just do it for close friends who call, who I think will be open to something broad, a broader idea. Hmm. Well, there have been so many artists who recorded your songs. Like, you know, there's Tom Wolpott. He did a really interesting take on one of your songs. But then there's... Yeah, how do you know about that? The the new record he made? Yeah. Yeah, wow, here we are again. And and then there's Pam Tillis. Pam Tillis, Madeline Rain. Madeline Rain. Yeah. Could you pick a favorite rendition of a Bruce Hornsby song that someone else... I do have that favorite, and no one's ever heard of it. Well, outside of maybe the San Francisco Bay Area... Great jazz drummer named Jerry Grinelli made a record, I think it's called Music from the Streets, something like that, where he recorded Rainbow's Cadillac with two guitars, bass, and drums. And it was such a great version that we, I kind of lifted a lot about that um, for the version that we play now. Years uh-huh. ago, when I was playing with the other ones, the, the uh, post-Grateful Dead group with Phil Lesh and Bob Weir and Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzmann and Steve Kimock and... Dave Ellis, uh, and John Molo, my old drummer, was playing in the first version of that. Uh, we tried to play the regular version of Rainbow's Cadillac the way we played it in our in our band at the time. It didn't have a name. It was just Bruce Hornsby in the nineties, and uh, we it was having the band was it wasn't gelling. It wasn't up their alley, and uh, it wasn't in their wheelhouse. So. Thought, well, let me come up with something different. And I'd heard this version. So I thought, oh, this is perfect. It's almost sort of dead like in a way, the way the drums play. Because the, the, the dead drummers weren't about, you know, big rock drumming. It wasn't about sa, tom, sa. It wasn't, it was lighter and, and freer, like this Jerry Grinelli tune. So, yeah, that's my favorite. Hmm. Well, tonight. I'm trying to think of something that that's by someone who. It was well known, but I can't. Most of my favorites are from the the obscurities. Yeah. Well, tonight you're playing with Ricky Skaggs. Tell me about meeting him. What? We've we met in uh, 1990. I was touring on our third record with the Range, third and last night in the town. And I think it might have been the first gig of our tour. We played in in a, a town called Horseheads, New York, near Elmira. Ricky was also on the festival. Don McLean was on the festival. And we were packing them out, as we said. There were more people backstage than in the audience. We probably were playing for 100 people. I don't know what happened, but we weren't popular. Anyway, I met Ricky. said, hey, if you want to play something with us, just feel free. Just come on out. It's pretty loose. 
And so he did come out on one song and played fiddle, and then he was gone, waved bye-bye, and he took off his bus because they had to go somewhere. And then I didn't really see him, but we had a sort of a five-year plan with with Ricky with the Skaggs Horns beat uh, connection. About 95, 96, he called me. to he was, he was the host of this show Live at the Ryman on the Nashville Network. And uh, he asked me to be a part of it. Bela Fleck, Vince Gill, and I were his, his guests that night. And Mark O'Connor, too, the fantastic fiddle virtuoso, violin virtuoso, who now is uh, teaching at my old school, University of Miami, where I've started a music program several years ago that's become sort of something of note. It's... Uh, anyway, <laughs> all these all these connections and digressions. Sorry. So oh, no. we did we, we did that uh, we did that uh, show, and we there was a real connection there, and we could feel it between the, between us. So about five years later, he was doing this Bill Monroe tribute record about two thousand, and he called me up, asked me. He said I was the first I was the first person he called about it. So I was and I was the first person to commit, and the first person to record on the record, and. It was the first song on the record, and it was a special take of an old traditional song that Bill Monroe used to play called Darling Corey. We'll do it tonight. It's on our live record, too, and it's gradually sort of evolved and changed and grown from the first version. Love the version on the live record. I love, I really like both of them. And so then, after that, one, cut, one song that we did at his studio in Hendersonville he said to me, hey, we had such a great time doing this with you. Would you be interested in, have any interest in making a whole record together? And I said, sure, absolutely. Just wait for our schedules to clear to clear out some time. And that happened, again, about five years later. Hmm. We started recording in 2005. Gradually, a couple of a song here, a song there. And the record came out in 2007. So, uh, and, and then six years after that, 2013, we came out with the second record, the live record, Cluck Old Hand, which mm. is something we're totally proud of. Didn't sell anything. Bluegrass is not. We, we, got, we were number one on the bluegrass charts on Billboard, so I finally found a chart I could be number one on. <laughs> well, this question comes from a guy named Rich Holmack. Oh, this is, I know the name. I know Rich. He loves Bruce Horn to be in the Noisemakers. Okay, I know, like I know the name Rich Holmack. Yes. I, met, I must have met. I, yes, Maybe he's did. written to me. I, I know you met him. Yeah. Okay. But he had a question. One of the only artists that, you know, is of your caliber that takes requests. Why do you do that? It all started, we've been doing this since 1990. We were touring the same tour that we met up with Ricky on. And we had the Cowboy Junkies open for us. We loved them. Margot Timmons, Mike Timmons, the whole crowd, the whole Timmons group there. And uh, one night we were playing Great Woods. It's now called the Tweeter Center, I think, in, in outside of Boston, Mansfield, Mass. They Somebody got sick, maybe Margot. Somebody got sick. They couldn't do the show. And so we came out and said, look, I'm sorry. If you're here to see the Cowboy Junkies, they can't play tonight. But So we're going to play the whole time. We're just going to open it up for requests. We didn't have a big crowd up there, 5,000. 5,000 would seem like a huge crowd now, but when you're playing a place that seats 18, you know, 5,000 didn't seem to be much. Didn't look like much. Anyway, it was a great night, and we've just been doing it ever since. That, that's how that came about. And it, it just leads us to different places, um, which is great fun. Uh, sometimes I, in the early years, people would make these wacky requests, and I would sort of try to rise to the occasion and segue from celebrate by cooling the gang into 
you know, brick house into white wheel limousine into I wish by Stevie Wonder. You know, who it, it, it was. It, we just thought, wait a minute, this is getting a little silly. We're not really expressing ourselves. We're just we're just taking dares. You know, <laughs> so but we still take a lot of requests. It helps us. Uh, I don't want to have a set list. Not since since then. I haven't had a set list since about 1990. And the requests help me pick the next song. I'll look. I just have them just lying around the floor, and I'll just look around. And, oh, I like that one. So when somebody comes to a Hornsby show, or when they listen to one of the albums, the bluegrass, your own, whatever, what do you want them to get out of the experience of listening? I want them to experience a joyful feeling where you can get the palpable sense that, that the people you're watching are having a great time, and they're making music, playing music together, and they're... They're making music in the moment where they're just not, they're not playing it by the book. They're just winging it, trying new things. That's what I want. That's, that's the feeling. That's how we approach the music. We always want, I'm always interested in making it new. I'm sort of entertaining the band. I do it a little bit with these guys. It's much more straight, straight. We have a set list because there's different tunings and different guitars. You can't just wing it like that. Not like we can in our group. Um, but, uh, it gets loose. And I guess I'm the guy who's supposed to bring the, the, loose, the loose vibe. So for anyone who's Quote watching unquote. this interview, or listening, or reading the transcript, however they experience it, what do you want to say to the person? Well, it depends on the person. A lot, I think a lot of people who will listen or read or see this interview will probably tend to be people who have followed me through this journey of 28, 29 years. And so they know what I, they really know what I do. They're, they're truly involved, passionately involved in, in my music. And so I think they will have probably heard a lot of these, <laughs> these answers, you know, before. Uh, I guess for the people who sort of just know the five or six hits from 86 to 1990 and lost touch, then I guess then they will if they're interested, and I wouldn't expect them to be. Most people don't have time to be interested and deal with all the music that's out there. I, I, I don't expect that. But I would hope that they might be intrigued by some of this and go, well, wow, I had no idea. Because that's really mostly what I get the last 15, 20 years of my career when people see us. You, you say, how do you, how do you want people to react? I told you that. But how often the reaction I do get from people is, wow, I had no idea. Mm. This is a whole different thing and way better than I thought it would be. So, uh, yeah, it's my standard line when I meet people in an airport. Hey, Bruce Hornsby, I'm, I'm your biggest fan. You know, I love, and they named five or six, I love, you know, Valley Road and across the river and Mandolin Rain and the way it is. And, the, and I say, uh, well, thanks a lot, but you know what? You've missed the best part. <laughs> and that's my standard line because, and I, I truly feel that way. You just said the best part. So what's the best part about being Bruce Hornsby? All these, being able to Look, I'm always trying to be inspired and stay inspired. And so it takes me to some different musical realms that are not mainstream. Mainstream you know, radio music, it's kind of boring to me. Yeah. I, look, sometimes I, the craft, the vocal ability off the charts, incredible, and the, the, the production values, I, sounds amazing. But just on a content level, I don't, I'm just, I'm just kind of don't, I'm just not, that uh, taken generally, with with great exceptions, 
but uh, generally not. So uh, the best part of being me is as I'm, I've sort of created this area for myself where I'm able to do, able to follow my muse and follow just follow my instincts and go wherever I want to go. Um, that's you. That's really rare, sort of. I think and uh, feed in different worlds, being able to work with a running the gamut from Spike Lee to Ricky Skaggs. That's a broad, broad range, and yeah. that's what I'm doing. I've scored, music, scored films for Spike the last several years and playing with Ricky and my band. I'm touring with Bob Weir this summer and touring with Pat Metheny. And so wow. it just never ends, you know, and that's, and you, so it's, it's a beautiful thing. I, 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 that's the best part. All that together is the best part. So for my last question, who is Bruce Hornsby? <laughs> uh, someone who doesn't take himself very seriously, <clears throat> deeply involved and deeply serious about what I'm, about what I'm trying to do well. All this all-encompassing music person, writing, singing, playing, uh, film composer, whatever, wearing a lot of hats, bluegrass piano player. But in the end, I... I think that I'm someone who doesn't take it that seriously, take most of life that seriously. Hell, I still phone prank people, you know. <laughs> I'm a musician. I don't have to grow up. I've heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my boys, I, I, I'm, enter I'm entertainment for my children, my 22-year-old twins, twin sons. They like it. Hey, Dad, you want to go out and talk gibberish, gibberish to tourists, you know, in Colonial Williamsburg, drive around? <laughs> so... Uh. I've raised them well. They like silliness. Well, Mr. Hornsby, thank you very much. My pleasure. pleasure. And it, I'm sorry it took so long. No, but, it, uh, was, it was great. Glad we, glad we made it. And uh, hey, be in touch. If you want to come to the show, let me know. And uh, everybody out there listening and viewing and reading, uh, thank you for being interested. It means a lot to me. Thank you. I felt like I could have talked to Bruce Hornsby forever. Look at the man's career. Look at the talent, the performances, album after album, from his solo career, his bluegrass records with Ricky Skaggs, his jazz albums. The man just does not stop. I enjoyed the interview very much, and I'd like to thank Bruce Hornsby for being so kind to take his time and give such an interesting, in-depth, and passionate interview. We hope that he joins us again someday. It was a great pleasure. And as long as the great artists like Bruce Hornsby are out there making music, I'll be here to interview them. You can check out Bruce Hornsby online at brucehornsby.com or visit my website at thepaulleslie.com. Thanks for watching, and see you next time on Paul Leslie Presents. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep bop, doodly, shop, bop, ding, daka. Ooh, no, I just think it was like a ponton, cook it to be, a zilla baka, tonkin, 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 tonkin,